Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Lesson 6 comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a a decree that the census should be taken of the entire world. This was the first census that should be taken while Quinarius was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time had come for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all your people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to the God, highest heaven, and on earth's peace who's those on, and on earth's peace to those who favor rest. When the angels had left them there and gone to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about them to this child, and all who had heard it were amazed at what the shepherds were saying to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondering them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Amen. Thank you, Lucy. She's my progeny. I can say that. (laughs) Good morning and welcome again to our Lessons in Carol service on this mild December morning. It is snowing and cold somewhere in the world, so um, I'll take solace in that. The problem with our text today is that the average New Yorker is too familiar with it. Whether you're a Christian or not, most people in this town have has heard about this story about a manger 2,000 years ago. And the problem with that is what happens when you become too familiar with something? When you become too familiar with something, you lose its power and its wonder. When, you, when something's too familiar to you, its importance is lessened. You, you forget why it was important in the first place. And so we have to delve in this again and again and again to try to figure out what really happened here. Because whether you believe in this or not, this text is saying this actually happened. Now, if it didn't happen, then the rest of the book of Luke doesn't really matter. But if it did, then it changes everything. So I want to look at this text briefly today. A, little, a quick homily. Two things, two premises I want to look at. One, that Christmas is real. And then two, if it's real... How does it change everything? So Christmas is real, and if it's real, it changes everything. So number one, Christmas is real. How do you know that? We know it 
historically and literarily. Look at verse 1. Um, Lucy so well articulated that there are these proper words that are thrown out here because Luke is trying to drop exactly, precisely the time when this happened. So notice in verse 1 it talks about that this all happened during the reign of Caesar Augustus, during Quirinius, during the, at the location, this is verse 4, the location of Nazareth and then Bethlehem to specific people, Joseph and Mary. If you look at the first five verses, there are ten proper names happening. So why is Luke so concerned? Why is he emphasizing names? And the reason why is I think he knows that when people hear this story, there's going to be this tendency to say, ah, that was a legend. That was all make-believe. This, is, this can't be real. And so what he's doing is, by dropping proper names in there, he's saying, I did the research. I talked to these people. Not necessarily Caesar Augustus, but I talked to the, the eyewitnesses of this event, and this actually happened with, at a specific time, in a specific place, with specific people. Time, place, people. And he's doing that because he's trying to say, hey, you too, this was written during the lifetime of these eyewitnesses, you too can go and discover if this happened or not. If you want more research on this, you can go to Richard Bauckham's book, Jesus and His Eyewitnesses, but it talks about how these gospels are full of these, of this name dropping, it's literally name dropping, so that you can know that you can go interview these people too and find out that this actually happened. So number one, historical. Number two, Literarily, this is not written like a legend. The, the money quote on this is actually from C.S. Lewis. Let me just read it to you. He says this. He says, as a literary historian, this is what he was. He was a professor of, of myths and legends. As a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend, and I am quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legend. There is nothing, even in modern literature, until about a hundred years ago, when the realistic novel came into existence, the art of inventing little irrelevant details to make an imaginary scene more convincing is a purely modern art. Surely the only explanation of, of this passage is that this thing happened. Here's what he's saying. He's saying there's, the Gospels, they talk about Jesus sitting on a cushion, or he's drawing his finger in the sand. There's these, uh, these things that happen in the text, but they have no actual meaning for why they're happening. And his point is, that's a mod, people wrote like that as, as a modern literary device. That didn't, people never did that back in the day, so to speak. And so what he's trying to say is, if you're skeptical of this event, you can't just wave a hand at it and say, oh, we just all know it's not true. You have to come up with an alternative thesis, hypothesis, for how these uh, Gospels came about as eyewitness accounts. Because if Luke didn't invent essentially realistic fiction thousands of years before anybody else, and then everybody forgot about it until, until now, then this is historical reportage. And then we have to grapple with that and figure that out. And so before we move on, has the magnitude of the reality that this is true affected us? Have we let it do that? Have we, or have we regulated it to mere cultural uh, tradition, devoid of its potent meaning? A, a recent secular historian that I've been following, she said that after she converted to Christianity, she said, I was doing ac an academic crime 
because she had not actually investigated the claims of Christianity as a historian. She knows that all of Western art and literature and law and ethics, human rights, which we talk about almost every day, it's in the news all the time, the very things that we base our society on come through Christianity. And have you considered those claims? Have you? And if you have, for all of us who do say we do, do we live daily in light of it? All of us have ups and downs through our, our, our daily lives. Are we applying Christmas to those moments? Has it stirred us and moved us to awe and wonder? I, I'm, and I'm asking not just you. I'm, I'm convicted myself because I know the answer is no, I don't. So don't commit the intellectual crime of not investigating the implications of the story. Okay, fine. Second point. Let's go through the implications. What the implications is, if this is true, everything changes. And I want to look at just a, a short list of three changes. Number one, you won't be as afraid. Look, go back to our text. Look at verse 9. It says the shepherds were terrified. It's, it's actually an understatement. Very rarely do you get that in the Bible. It's understatement. The, the Greek word here is they feared a great fear. It, the, the Greek is uh, it's megaphobophobo, where we get phobia. They were really scared. And they were really scared. And the question you have to ask yourself is, why? Well, I want to propose to you that the, our normal everyday experiences, humans, the human reality is we live in fear. We live in fear of the past. Why? Because there are things that we've thought, that we've done, actions, that we don't want to come to light. Because if it did, we're worried it won't, we won't be loved. It's not just like the really, really bad things. Even just the... the um, decisions we might have made that were wrong, or the thoughts we thought that we didn't think anybody else might have actually heard, we don't want that to come to light. That's the past. We live in fear of that. Presently, we're in fear because I think everybody in this room, to varying degrees, we have money, family, uh, we have uh, you know, various other resources that we look to to feel safe. We look to these resources and we say, hey, this is how I know I'm going to be okay. And if that's what we do, and because they're physical things, those things can actually be taken from us. And because of that, there's at some level, we're afraid. What will happen if we lose this? What happens if I lose my job? What happens if I lose my family? What happens if I lose the things that I'm looking to? There's a fear about that. And then also, lastly, the, um, for this part, we're afraid of the future. What do I mean by that? There's a part of us that goes, what happens if I never get married? What happens if I never get the... the, the aspirations I'm looking to? What happens if I never get that job? What happens if I never get the thing that I think that if I, I'm looking for, I'm okay now because I know I'm going to go for that for the future. But what if we don't get it? See, past, present, and future, I would argue it's our normal state of fear. So go back to our shepherds and they see this angel and it says they're very afraid. Why is that? I think the existential experience of a supernatural being in front of you, an angel, what it would do is it would elicit the, the fears of the past, present, and future all at once. And it would, make, it would be overwhelming. Because I think normally we don't categorize our lives as fear. We don't think we don't, I don't think most of us say that we live in fear all the time. But an angel would bring that out. So then the question is, how do they move from a state of fear to a state of joy so quickly? The angel sure says, do not fear. But no offense, but if somebody just says, do not fear, it doesn't mean I'm not going to fear. So what happens? Verse 11 says, unto you, born this day, what? A Savior. And this is the Christmas story. The Christmas story is we live in fear, past, present, and future, but we don't have to anymore 
because there's a Savior who was born. So you're afraid of rejection. How will you ever get over your fear of rejection? A Savior means ultimately you'll never be rejected. How do we get over any of our other fears? Every single answer is that we see Christ our Savior. That's what we find. The first thing that changes. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. Fear. Number two, what else changes? Peace. The end of fear, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean that you automatically get peace. So how do you get actually peace? Well, go in our text, look at verse 13. There's this great company, a host. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appears. A king can get peace in a kingdom by destroying his enemies, can they not, right? That's one, one way to bring peace. There's a lot of different ways to bring peace. In this particular text, a heavenly host, the word host is a military term. And a great company of hosts means there's more than one. And scholars have tried to figure out how, how many angels, this host that's swirling around, how many were there. And we're not told. But if you try to do a little bit of sleuth work, if you go to Revelation 5, John sees a host of angels. You know what he, you know what he counts? He counts a thousand times a thousand times ten thousand times ten thousand. And since I'm a nerd, I tried to do that on my calculator this week. And apparently there's like, it's like 14 zeros and it broke my calculator because it, it, can't, it can't go that high. I think 12 is a trillion. 14 is even more than that. I'm not, maybe somebody else can tell me what that is. Because I know, I looked up a gazillion. That's actually not a real um, number. I, tr- I tried for that. But, and that's one host. Now, we're not told if they're all here. We're not told. But here's what I, I think we can, we can imagine. Put ourselves in that spot. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? What are you experiencing? What are you uh, seeing? If we were there and we saw, a, again, I, you know, over a trillion more and more angels swirling around, my first thing would be more fear. So how is there peace? What are they saying? The great host says, verse 14, glory to God high, in the highest heaven and on earth, peace. Now, you, you know, you heard of the choir up here. You heard some great sounds from their voices. What if you had, again, over a trillion saying peace? The very army that could destroy you with a, a snap of fingers saying peace. That's the only way that they felt like they could have peace. The only way that they could uh, really get this and not be worried anymore is that they heard these words told to them. The declaration of peace, which is why they could get up in, by the way, verse 15, and then go to Bethlehem. Notice they didn't run the other way, which is what you would do if you were still afraid. Instead, they went ahead. And not further out, but further in. And so these shepherds still had everyday issues, did they not, right? When they went back into their normal lives, did they, uh, all of a sudden, you know, everything was great, and they had happy days for the rest of their life? No, they still had the ups and downs. But they could apply peace 
into their everyday situations, which changed how they saw the reality. I think a lot of us, we, we leave these, this room, and the rest of the week happens, and we get overwhelmed in the everyday nature of things because we're not applying peace in those spaces. And so if, if, if this heavenly host who could end you in a second didn't come for that, why did they come? I think the only reason they came is they wanted to get a glimpse. They wanted to get a one sight of the most glorious moment in human history, which is the most supernatural occurrence, all these angels swirling, gives way to the most natural occurrence, a baby in a manger. And I think that's where the juxtaposition of the Christian story happens, where you have the extraordinary give way to the ordinary, and the ordinary is actually more extraordinary because it's Jesus. Where you have the infinite become finite, where you have the, um, you know, the, the one who can never be destroyed can, it gets destroyed. See, the arc of Jesus' life starts like this. He's born on wood, and he ends his life on wood. Right? He starts with a wood feeding, in a wood feeding trough, and he ends on a wooden cross. It starts by not finding a place to be born, right, where um, he had no place to lay his head. And it ends when he knows where he is going to be taken to die. It starts by being given cloth. It ends with his... With those, his, his, the only thing he had of, that was, he owned, his clothes were ripped apart. The rejection of the world starts here, right? It starts with not being able to find a place at the end. It, it ends with the rejection by us all. Christmas is not a story about how you get saved. Hear that? Hear that? Please hear that. If you hear anything else, hear that. It's not a story about how to get saved. It's about how he came to save that we can't get to him. And so what you have, the Christmas story with a profound nature of it is that he comes down to us. He's cast out so that we can get in. So what does that mean? It means that you can have peace. I think this is probably, the, there's different, other, you know, there's other types of, of mini pieces out there. You can get uh, temporal ones, but the infinite cosmic peace that's available is here, and it changes everything. Now, Third change. Christmas means no more fear. It means peace. But thirdly, it means we go. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, it says, When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning. When the shepherds had seen him, they spread the word. Now, I'm, I'm bringing this up because I've been doing church life with you all now almost seven years. And here's what I've learned about many New Yorkers. Many New Yorkers, because you're experts in your field... You don't want to go and tell because you don't feel like you're an expert here. You don't feel like, you know, what if they ask me questions? What if other people don't understand? What if, what if, what if, what if? And what I love about the Christmas story is I think God knew your hearts, knew my heart. And he purposely picked people who, to, to, have the, to give the most important message in history, who does he pick? He picked shepherds who back then and today are not known as, the, as intellectual giants. They're not. And, and as uneducated as they, they might have been, they understood enough that they could go. And, and I'm telling you all that because I want to empower you. That whatever you think you need to know, you don't need to know that. You just need to know this. That Mary and Joseph, who were they? In, in the, before Anything else, Mary and Joseph, they, they were nobodies from a nothing town. Young kids 
in our, for, from our day and age. But he picks them to start his kingdom on purpose because that is how God works. And he, did, he does it um, always that way. The, the, the earlier parts of the Bible, before we get here, over and over and over again, God's trying to show his character. That's why he picks Sarah, who's too old to have a child. He picks David, right? Out of all the sons, Samuel's trying to pick which one. He picks the youngest. He picks the smallest one. He always picks uh, Moses, who, who denied God. He picks Jacob, who wrestled with God. It's, all, it's a way to say, it's not about knowing enough. He picks those who, objectively speaking, from our assessment, they would, they're the least likely to come to him. And if he uses them to do his work, that should show you that he can use you too. In, in all these different ways. And so if you're like, well, well who am I? Who am I, who, who am I to do, say anything? That pr- idea is exactly why you can be used. It's precisely why you can be used. When you really receive peace, a sign that you understand it is that you go and you can't help but sh- and share it. Let me just do a quick caveat. When I say share, I don't mean be annoying. I, I'm, um, I go on the subway all the time. People are sharing their music all the time to me on the subway with those Bluetooth speakers, I don't want that. And I think people think, because there have been bad versions of sharing, but sharing is loving, loving is caring, caring is, is being with people in a way that they need us and want us. So that means you share your love. How? You can, there's so many different ways to do it. And I, I almost don't want to go into it because I don't want to limit what it means, but it means being curious. It means asking questions. It means seeing the needs of the world and, and going into that because the incarnation, if it means anything else, it means this. It means joy into the world. Why? Because if the infinite becomes finite, that means this world matters. There's a reason why God didn't say, hey, I love the world. You know what that means? I'm going to take you all out. You know, zap. We're all with, you know, wings and little halos and we're all flying around. No. If you look at Revelation, the new heavens, new earth, heaven comes down to earth. It's this world fixed and remade. And if that's true, then there's a, that, that means then God cares about disease and injustice and uh, fixing the wrongs and saving souls. Because the, the incarnation is one giant statement saying this world matters. And my question to you, before we, before we move on with the rest of our service, is this. Will you partake in that? Will you Help us bring joy to the city because the purpose of salvation is not to escape the world. Purpose of salvation is to equip you to go further in, to go into the places that need it the most. In the country, where do people need it the most? Wherever there's the most people. And I know in New York, for America, that's where the most people are. So you should go further into spaces like New York, not away. I hate to say this, but God did not come to your life so that you can have a comfortable life. He didn't come to your life so that you can kind of get away and find a place where I can finally, you know, um, live somewhere where I can have a nice life somewhere. That's just not it. The point of salvation is the redemption, renewal, and healing of this world. And are we going to go into the places where it needs that? Are we going to do that? Are we going to be part of the healing? And so ask yourself today, where am I doing that? Am I really good newsing it? Not in an annoying way. Are you really doing it in the way that people need it and the world needs it? Are you incarnating? If God incarnated, are you incarnating now? Because that's our calling. That's the good news. And it's the ultimate mission of uh, this church, Redeemer Lincoln Square. 
We're trying to, it's for the joy of the city. And the way we do that is by being a restorative presence in the city. And where are we doing that? We can do that cosmically, we can, and we can do that temporally. We can do that in so many different places through our time and talents and treasures. So use Christmas to ask yourself, do I have the same goal for creation as God has for creation? Let me leave us with one quick application. You might say, that's all nice and theoretical, Mike. Thank you so much. Personally, I'm a pretty happy person. I'm normally a pretty happy person. The past six months, I've not been a pretty happy person. A lot of you are in the same spaces. There's, there's dark nights of the soul. There's hardships. There's, you're being misunderstood. You're lonely. You're, it's not enough. Uh, you feel forgotten. What's the answer to that? My, my wife's not going to want me to tell you this. My wife, Sarah, it's her birthday today. She's 45, but she was adopted on, on um, Valentine's Day. And my favorite story about her probably is this, is that when she was adopted, her parents right away told her that she was adopted from birth. And so by, she heard it so much that by the time she got to walking, talking age, she used to go around to everybody and go, I'm adopted. I'm, she used to say this, she goes, I'm adopted. That means my mom and daddy wanted me. Does your mom and daddy want you? She would do that. And what I love about that is it shows that adoption for her meant loved. Adoption for her meant that she was sought after. The incarnation is saying as dark as your night might be right now, it can't swallow you up because he's come for you the way parents come for you in adoption. Your new identity of adoption means that you've been chosen, you've been long sought after, and if you've been sought after that much, and he sought after you that much, will you seek after him in the same way? What if today we stopped saying, why is God not pursuing me? Why don't we say, man, he has pursued me. I want to pursue him now. What if instead of that we say, Christmas applied to us now, everything changes. Right? Go back to the fear, right? Pick any fear you have right now and apply Christmas. I lost my job. Christmas. You know, my parents are dead. Christmas. My Friendship relationships are over. I still have Christmas. Christmas is the application to any darkness that you have in you and it does because it doesn't destroy you through it. And peace, by the way, is just the opposite, right? These, these uh, shepherds, any other bright light they saw, any other beauty they would see in life, for the rest of their life, they would say this. They'd say, oh, man, that's beautiful. How wonderful. Ah, but not as bright as that night we saw those angels. In other words, they, never, they didn't let the brightness and beauty of other worldly stars shine out against this, this true light. And they were able to find this light as their real light. And, that, and this light then moved them and they were able to see how the darknesses, the other darknesses of the world fully and ultimately get the brightness of Jesus his birth as the Savior in, that is the way to actually shine light in darkness. All the other lights are, are temporal. They're not enough. But this one will stick with us. So last thing to say is, will you let him come into your life? Let him enter your anxiety. Let him enter your career. Let him enter your, your decisions about moving. Let him enter your shame and the things you're hiding from others. If you've not activated this in your life, there's ne it's never too late. You can start today. You can still let Christmas be real and to change us if you'll let it. That's the invitation of this text. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for Christmas. That if real, it changes everything. If, we've, if we're not one that's fully explored yet today, the claims of Christmas, the historicity, the literary um, truths that we find, I pray that we will do that today and, and really ask. Ask questions, find people, weigh, and not do, not, um, you know, not have an intellectual crime against not doing it. At the same time, if, we, if we're here and we say we do believe this, I pray we let it affect us. Father, to some degree, all of us have not a let it hit our hearts. We might know it in our heads, but not in our hearts. Help us to reflect and meditate and think and experience until our hearts are warmed by this and we are able to rejoice and sing and tell others, Father. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.